have time ticking and I've got a red light, so I'm going to assume we are good to go. All right, so this is Abnormal Psychology, Psych 213. Today's topic is Chapter 11 in our book. It's Mood Disorders and Suicide. Now, I'm going to tell you that suicide is not a mental health disorder. However, is it a mental health issue? And you might go, well, why is it put into this chapter? Well, oftentimes suicide and depression are highly correlated. So that's the reason why it's in here. We're going to go through the mood disorders first. Then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about suicide afterwards. All right. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. What are mood disorders? In my eyes, I'll just share this. Mood disorders really should be called depressive disorders because they're going to include depression in some sort or in some way. So mood disorders describe conditions in which the intensity of emotion and affect creates significant problems for the individual and the people around them. We tend to have mood disorders head in one of two directions. Usually they're unipolar, so they're only headed one direction, or they're bipolar, meaning they're going in both extremes of mood. So, you know, that would be elation all the way down to depression, right? Euphoria all the way down to the depths of the lows, right? So that's bipolar. Unipolar means they're just headed one direction. So one way to kind of think about that. The diagnosis for mood disorders, let's talk about some of them. So the first one is major depressive disorder or major depressive episode. So what is a major depressive episode? Let's kind of talk about it from an episode standpoint first, then we'll talk about the disorders. A major depressive episode is two weeks of nearly constant depressive symptoms. Now this is distinguished by its duration. You know, if you have a loss of a loved one, are you going to be sad for a while? Yeah, you are, right? You're going to be sad for a while, and you're going to be sad for a while because you lost a loved one, right? We talk about bereavement and grieving, right? If you lose your favorite socks, you know, your washer ate your favorite pair of socks, would you be down maybe for, you know, maybe you have some kind of, like, that's your favorite pair of socks. Every time you've passed a, a test in Bailey's class, you've been wearing those socks and <gasps> you're coming up on the final. What are you going to do? You might get a little panicky. Okay, you might be a little depressed. Maybe they were your favorite socks for whatever reason. But you're, it's not going to last two weeks. This is two weeks of depressive symptoms where they're nearly constantly depressed. That is significantly different than I'm sad or I have a loss or something's gone wrong and I, and I feel depressed about it. So the duration is a big one. The degree of disturbance. Notice it says at least five of the symptoms are present. At least one of the symptoms is either depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. So it's not just one or two symptoms of sadness. We're gonna have a whole list of, of symptoms of sadness, of depression. And the third thing that distinguishes a major depressive episode is the idea that it causes impairment. You can't make it to class because you're depressed. You're missing work, you're taking off sick days, and maybe you don't have the sick days to take off, right? So to be considered part of a major depressive episode, the episode must represent a change from previous functioning. So this isn't how you normally are. It's not like you're always down and depressed, Mr. Doom and Gloom person, 
It's that this is a significant change from what you're normally like. And it's been going on for two weeks. It's highly intense, right? And again, it's causing some kind of impairment. A manic episode, that's kind of the opposite. So we talk about these kind of extremes of mood. Manic is kind of the opposite of depressed. So a manic episode is a distinct period of time, at least one week in duration. Unless the person has already been required, you know, already been uh, hospitalized, right? So maybe they've only, you've only seen them for two days and they've been manic, but they've already been hospitalized. We know the pattern, right? We know what's going to happen. And notice it's a distinct period of expansive, elevated, or irritable mood. Someone's in a, in a manic state, they are extremely elated. They're euphoric. And if they're full-blown mania, almost to the point of incoherence. They're that full of energy. They're that pumped up. Think of it that way, right? During an episode, people tend to show this. Grandiose or inflated self-esteem. They think they're all that. They think they're all you know, powerful. They, they think they can do everything. And they start a thousand things but they don't tend to finish them because again, I take on too much, right? They tend to have very little need for sleep. They tend to have pressured speech. It's almost like their mouth can't keep up with what's racing through their brain. They have a flight of ideas. They pop from topic to topic and they're easily distracted. They have distractibility. Their demeanor is typically flamboyant or dramatic. Their judgment is poor. They tend to be involved in illegal activities and arrests are not uncommon. They're literally, think of it this way, they're bouncing off the walls. So if I got into manic state, I might talk really fast. It might be really pressured. Like, like right now, like, do you know that what happened last night? This is a different recorder than normally I record because normally I record with this other recorder that's kind of more, norm, you know, it's newer and I like it, right? Because it actually works much better than this one, but this is an older one. You might hear some clicking in the background, but I can't do anything about it because the other one fell on the floor yesterday. So like when I was walking out of class, I'm walking out of class. My arms are full of stuff. I'm trying to talk to students. I walk out of the class. It falls and hits the ground. Do you know what? I just love helping out. Do you know I help out everybody when it snows? You know what's almost snow season because it's the fall right now and you know snow's coming right and when I go and I plow my driveway I plow everybody's driveway why because you know what I'm so full of energy I'm like oh I'm gonna be a nice guy I'm gonna be good Samaritan I'm gonna go and plow everything you know what I'm talking about you know what I'm talking about right like you like to help out people you, you know what I mean it right so I never get sleep during the winter time because I'm always out like I could actually plow until like three four o'clock in the morning I'm sure the neighbors get pissed off because my lights are shining in the windows but I don't care because I'm trying to do some nice stuff for them you know what I'm talking about so like a person who's manic is literally bouncing off the walls. They're, you can tell, pressured speech, right? I'm barely keeping up with what's running through my head. I'm jumping from topic to topic. I've got 40 different things going on and I can't do all of them. So this is mania, right? And again, poor judgment. What, plowing people's driveways at 3 a.m.? Really? Like it's okay to be nice, but man, uh, they got to work and you're keeping them up with a plow. Hypomanic episode. Now there is an, a hypomanic episode. Hypomanic episode is just below mania. I like to describe it this way. It's mania light. It's mania without the insanity, right? So here the person is elated, but they're still making sense they still seem to be a little bit grounded. They're not incoherent. 
It's not as far gone. It's tough to describe. I mean, unless you, unless you sense it, unless you experience it, that's the best way to describe it. You know, people, you go, well, you're a little bit, you're high strung, you need to calm down a little bit, versus you are bouncing off the walls. So I know that's not a good definition, but that's the best way I can describe the difference between hypomania and mania. With hypomania, symptoms are similar to, but less severe than a manic episode. They have at least three symptoms of elevated, expansive, or irritable mood lasting at least four days, not necessarily a week. So not as long in duration, not as extreme in intensity. But notice what it says. No psychotic symptoms are allowed by the diagnostic criteria. Because the minute that you start getting into that psychosis, where you almost lose touch with reality, now we're talking full-blown mania. Now it's not hypomania. Now it's, it's really extreme. Hypomanic episodes tend to begin abruptly. They may last for weeks or months. Frequently, a major depressive episode either precedes or follows the experience. Imagine if you're bouncing off the walls for days and days and days on end and you're not sleeping very well. What is eventually going to happen to your body? You're going to get exhausted and tired, right? You're eventually going to crash. There's no other choice. That's what happens. And notice what it says. Up to 15% of sufferers of hypomania will eventually develop into a manic episode as well. So not all the time, but a couple times, 15% of the time, it's going to not just stop at hypomania, it's going to progress further. Anybody in here ever suffer from a manic type of, type of episode? Not really, a little bit. It's more hypomanic. Can you describe it? Okay. And like I just, I don't know. It was kind of weird because like the whole days before, like I was fine and I was like, oh yeah, everything's fine, and I was like super high energy. And then right, right afterwards, like as soon as they were like, hey, you, like you're, you need to stop, and I was like, <laughs> you were, you were, you were already, you know, bouncing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and again, that's that's kind of you. Sometimes there's a stressor, sometimes there's not. Um, sometimes people with mania, like full-blown mania, will like purchase everything. Like they'll go on the home shopping network at 3 a.m. and purchase tons of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the stuff rolls in and they're like overwhelmed with it all. And that's where the depression comes in. They start all these projects and then they look at them all and they go, I can't finish them all. And then that becomes saddening, you know, or you, you start to, you know, kind of bounce off the walls and then you realize that you, you get tired and then you're, you're just bound to crash in, in some ways. So thank you for sharing, right? So again, this is some of what we see, all right? So that's hypomanic, manic, and depressive episode. So here we are, here are our major categories, right? So you're gonna see on this page, I call these unipolar disorders. So they're headed one direction. They're headed towards depression. They're not headed towards mania. So these ones, these are DSM-5 diagnoses. These are ones you're not necessarily gonna see a manic episode with. 
right? So you've got major depressive episode, presence of major depression, right? Or major depressive disorder, I should say. Presence of a major depressive episode. Remember, at least two weeks of depression, almost constant depression, right? That's the minimum required time for the, for the disorder. And notice it says more common in females. Again, I'm gonna argue that females are more willing to talk about their feelings and depression than males are. Males tend to express their depression in angry outbursts. So they might not necessarily be identified as being depressed. They might be identified as being irritable or angry or, or pissed off or hostile. So I, I just warn you of that. We've got persistent depressive disorder. This is what we used to call dysthymia. Think dysthymia, think down mood. A great example of dysthymia is Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. You know, Eeyore walks around, his tail falls off, right? So it's, you know, kind of pinned on his, on his butt. And he walks around. If you search on YouTube for Eeyore's birthday party, you will find a, like a, a cartoon of Eeyore's birthday party. And they're like, oh, Eeyore, it's your birthday. Let's throw a party. No, I don't know, Pooh. No one's going to come anyway. I don't know why you go to all the trouble. It's just a day. No big deal. You know, it's like mopey, mopey, mopey. That's, uh, but it's constant. It's almost continuous depression. But it's, it's not as deep as major depression. It's more like a low level of depression, but it's more constant. Here's what we see. Persistent depressed mood, usually including a major depressive episode, but it doesn't require it. And the duration is at least two years. There was a student that used to pop into my office. He was coming here for the first two years of his educational career because we're a community college, right? And he would come in and I kind of labeled him doom and gloom boy. Because he would come in, he would always dress in black, didn't have any friends, nobody wanted to hang with him. He was always depressed, you know, he was always sad. He's like, I don't have any friends. And I'm like, well, dude, you know, anybody talks to you, you just kind of bring them down, man. I mean, you know, I'm being blunt. I'm not trying to hurt his feelings, but I'm, I'm trying to help him out. So it came time for him to transfer to a four-year school. And I said, you know, right now is your opportunity. You can either continue being doom and gloom boy, right? And then when you get to the new school, the same thing's gonna happen. People are gonna look at you and they're gonna walk away because you're, you're down, right? You're depressed. Or you have an opportunity when you go to that school to recreate yourself, to start over. So what was really interesting is about three weeks or no, actually more like three months. Three months after he left, I got an email from him. It had a picture in there. He's not dressed in black, he's dressed in colors, he's got a smile on his face, surrounded by his friends. He said, I decided to restart my life. But for, for the two years he was here, he was doom and gloom boy. I mean, he was down. And again, you know, you don't wanna hang around Eeyore too much. Eeyore just drags you down. And if you wanna use like Winnie the Pooh as examples for mood disorders, Tigger, who's bouncy, 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 fun, 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 he's manic. You know, Tigger's everywhere. He's bouncing all over the damn place. You can't even nail that guy down. So you've got the two extremes, Eeyore, Mr. Sadness, Mr. Dysthymia, Persistent Depressive Disorder, and then you've got Mr. Manic, Tigger. So again, think of those extremes, right? So Persistent Depressive Disorder, Dysthymia, again, more common in females, I would argue that they're 
more likely to come to treatment, and that's why it's more diagnosed. The third one you see down here, this one actually is a little controversial. It came out in DSM-5. It was not in any of the previous, previous DSMs, and it's premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So it's mood lability and irritability during most menstruations and menses. So of course, you know, specific to females because it's during menstruation, right? Um, one year is the required, um, you know, requirement for diagnosis. So almost every month you are down and depressed around your monthly cycle. Now the reason why this is controversial is many women say, wait, 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 wait. Menstruation is a normal process. It's okay to be down. There is a physiological loss. You're losing blood, right? I mean, there is a physiological loss that occurs. So that shouldn't be a mental disorder. However, the psychiatric community has said, no, when it is so impaired that it causes a, a, you know, impairment in your life. In other words, it's a monthly cycle that is not normal. This is extreme depression. This is extreme like dysthymia. Then the diagnosis is appropriate. And then the final one you see here, so these again are the unipolar, if you will, right? Headed one direction, headed south, think of it that way, is disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. And here what is what it is. Before the age of 10, recurrent severe temper outbursts three or more times per week for 12 months. And notice it's more common in males. Because what did I tell you? Males tend to deal with mood, with depressive mood, with more anger. So it makes sense that you would see this, this acting out type of temper behavior in males more than females. This would have been considered a childhood disorder in DSM-4, TR, and before, but remember, in DSM-5, we join them together in one category. Make sense? So those are what we call the unipolar, headed one direction. These are what we call bipolar. Bipolar disorder, there are only three. Bipolar 1, bipolar 2, and cyclothymic disorder. So we'll go with cyclothymic disorder first. Cycling mood for a long period of time. Like dysthymia, down mood, like Eeyore, but this person is constantly, like reoccurrent depression and hypomania without major depression or manic episodes lasting at least two years. So it's extremes, right? It's elated mood, depressed mood, elated mood, depressed mood, but not deep, deep depression and not high, high elation. So you're not hitting mania, and you're not necessarily hitting deep depression, major depression, but you're in that middle cycle, never quite feeling normal, always up or down for two years, like a roller coaster. Cyclothymic, cycling mood. That's the way to remember it, okay? The other two are bipolar two and bipolar one, right? Bipolar one means that you've had mania, full-blown mania. So the minute that you have mania, you are bipolar one and you will always be labeled bipolar one because our general belief is what is going to follow mania. If you're bouncing off the walls for two weeks, you're going to crash. You're going to get depressed. So if you have a manic episode, 
that extreme, then our belief is you're going to have a major depressive episode, so bipolar one is your disorder. Let's say that you've had a major depressive episode, but you've never had full-blown mania. You've had hypomania, elated mood, but not so far as you become almost incoherent or almost psychotic, then we call it bipolar two. Does that make sense? So let's do this. Let's think about this for a minute. You go into the doctor, you're depressed. Okay, you have major depression. You've had a depressive episode for at least two weeks. And the doctor labels you major depressive disorder. Right? You get better. You then go into the doctor again, somewhere down the line. You have another major depressive disorder. What is our diagnosis? It's still major depression. Unipolar. Right? So that's what we call you. Then let's say that you get better and on down the road you have a hypomanic episode, right? You have some elation that's higher than normal. Now we're going to call you bipolar 2. And regardless of whether you have another hypomanic episode or not, let's say the rest of your episodes are all depressive, you've had a hypomanic episode at least once, we call you bipolar 2. Now, let's say that you go along, right? You're now diagnosis of bipolar two, and now you have a full-blown manic episode. Then guess what? You will be called bipolar one and will be for the rest of the time. Regardless of whether you have another manic episode, regardless of whether you have another depressive or hypomanic episode, because you've had mania once, we know depression's gonna follow, we call you bipolar one. Does that kind of make sense? So it's how a diagnosis can change over time. So just to give you an idea, you're never going to go from bipolar 1 to bipolar 2. You can go from bipolar 2 to bipolar 1. Yes? In most diagnoses, do the numbers, like the lower the number, does it usually mean that that's the more severe case? Not necessarily. It's just that's how it works in this one. Again, I think it's because Bipolar 1 tends to be the more common. If you're going to have a hypomanic episode, eventually, guess what you're going to have? Usually a mania somewhere. Right? We used to just say, if you have any kind of elation, you're bipolar. And then they go, well, wait, you know, that's the most common, bipolar 1. But what about people who don't have full-blown mania? Well, then we'll call them bipolar 2. But of course, the general feeling is, guess what? You're going to at some point. That's depressing. It is. It's a little bit. But again, it makes sense, right? The minute you hear bipolar 1, you know the person at some point in their history has had mania. If they say major depressive disorder, you know that they've never had mania or hypomania. And if they have bipolar 2, you know they've had major depression and some hypomania, you might be able to anticipate maybe a full-blown manic episode, but at least you know there's going to be periods of mania. So in some ways, those labels, even though they're not the best, they give you a lot of information. So again, that's why I kind of share it. Notice again that bipolar 1 tends to have equal distribution between males and females. Bipolar 2 and cyclothymic disorder tends to be more female. So let's go ahead and take a look, right? Now we can use what's called qualifiers with all of these. 
qualifiers are a rating of severity. So you could have bipolar, you know, you could have major depression, mild, major depression, moderate, major depression, severe. Severe is an indication um, as to whether psychotic symptoms are present. So again, if you have major depression with psychosis, that's severe, right? Notice we can also use these other clarifiers, like with mixed features. That means that maybe you show some signs of mania or depression, but mm, they're not present right now. Or it's not far enough to meet a different diagnosis. With catatonic features, so there's some kind of behavioral um, acting out, whether that's more stone-like or whether that's got stereotypic kinds of behaviors. There's a motor disturbance with the mood disorder. That's what it means. With melancholic features, so that seems like a lower level of sadness. It's a little different than depression. With postpartum onset, so postpartum depression, right? So depression that happened, but it happened after the birth of a child. That's important to know, right? So again, that qualifier might be very helpful. Seasonal pattern, we used to say seasonal affective disorder, now we just say major depression, seasonal pattern. Yes. Well, normally when we say seasonal pattern, normally the normal pattern is that people get depressed during the winter months because there's less sun. It's, it's really interesting. Here's some of the treatments, and I'll just kind of beat to the punch in case we don't get the recording all the way through, right? Um, because we're using a different recorder and I'm not sure how long the battery will last in this one, so we'll see. But treatment for major depression or treatment for depressive disorders can be medication, SSRIs, antidepressant medication, tend to be the most common approach. Cognitive behavioral talk therapy, of course, makes sense, right? Because what happens is in depression, you think that you suck, the world sucks, your future sucks. Well. Come on, really? All three of those things are true? We call it the triad. Beck talked about depression triad, and Beck is very famous for depression research. In fact, the Beck's depression inventory, the most commonly used test, right? But Beck said there's a triad. I believe the world sucks, I suck, and my future sucks. Well, if those three things are true, I got nothing to look forward to. But that's a thinking error. So let's work on cognitive thinking, right? So again, Cognitive behavioral therapy can be helpful. You know, medication can be helpful. And then two of the other approaches, if it's severe depression, medication and talk therapy aren't working. The person is so depressed that they actually become a danger to themselves or others. Then we use electroconvulsive shock therapy. Because electroconvulsive shock therapy seems to interrupt the thought patterns of depression in the brain. They interrupt the electrical impulses. And so it reduces the depression. Now it doesn't necessarily take it all away, but it reduces to the point where you can actually talk to someone. If I get an opportunity, I'm gonna run up to my office. I forgot to bring down my videos today, but I have a video of someone receiving ECT, electroconvulsive shock therapy, and they're depressed beforehand. And then you see them after treatment. And I'll let you be the judge of whether you think it's, it's helpful. In fact, 
Major depression, major depressive episodes where nothing else works is the only thing that ECT is currently used for, electroconvulsive shock therapy. And then the final treatment, dig this, phototherapy. Phototherapy means increasing the lighting to full spectrum lighting in your environment. Full spectrum, spectrum lighting is lighting that produces all the wavelengths of the natural sunlight that we get. Now it doesn't you know, show it at the same intensity, so it's not like the sun in your lamp, but it shows all the wavelengths of the sun. And phototherapy is a treatment for seasonal affective disorder, for people who get down in the winter months because they don't seem to get as not enough sunlight or sunshine. Believe it or not, we're nothing more than walking houseplants. We need sun. So that's some of the stuff that we see. I use that and people always giggle about it, but it's true. It's true, we, we need sunlight. So again, some of this, so with seasonal pattern, we're going to make the assumption that means during the winter months. Yeah, people aren't normally depressed during the summer months, but the winter months. Question. So you don't get the sun, you said when you lived in Washington, you didn't get the sun like you did maybe living somewhere else. And so again, again, it can be very, you know, depressing in mood, you know, your environment seems a little depressing. And so then does that affect your mood? Well, hell yeah. So it's some of the stuff that we see. All right. Yeah, you can buy them on Amazon. They t their prices are coming down. Yeah. I mean, they used to be really expensive because they said they were medical products. So, so of course, they can then put a ton of money on them. But nowadays, yeah, it's coming down. I mean, I'll, I'll, be, I'll just share this little bit of personal stuff with you. I go away every spring break. And people go, oh, yeah, why do you go away every spring break? I have to get out of Dodge. If you meet me in February, I am mopey. I am miserable. I am not happy. I don't do well in the darkness. I, I, you know, when I come to class in the morning and it's dark and I leave at night and it's dark, it just, it, I just get down. And I go away, I'm away for a week, I get sun on my skin and it's gotta be someplace warm. I used to do that over Christmas break too. I'd go to Florida over Christmas break. I can't afford to do it now, but I used to, right? So, and then I would come back and I'd feel, you know, full of energy and it's not just vacation, it, it was just, feeling different. I can't explain it. It's just a different feeling. I just feel, and then I can make it through the rest of the year. And then I get to the summertime and, and I'm, I'm more happy-go-lucky, right? So again, I share that. And notice the last one here, the last clarifier is anxious distress. So you can have a depressive or a manic episode with anxious distress. So it's distressing you. It's causing anxiety in you. So again, all just clarifiers or qualifiers. So let's talk about these one at a time. Major depressive disorder diagnosed requires the presence of a major depressive episode without any history of mania or hypomania. Because the minute that you have mania or hypomania, we're now in the bipolars. 
Almost 10% of those having a single episode will eventually develop a manic episode. So just because you have a depressive episode, only in 10% of the cases, one in 10, are you going to develop into a bipolar disorder. It's more likely you're just gonna stay on the depressed side. What we know is that depression becomes more likely to reoccur with each additional episode. So if you have one episode of major depression, there's a 70% chance, right, of, well, I should say this, there's maybe about a 50% chance of having a second one. If you have a second one, there's about a 70% chance of having a third one. And if you have a third one, there's about 90% chance of having a fourth one. So the way to think about this, this, this is the way I like to think about it. Think about opening up that pathway, that that becomes a way of functioning. And the more that that pathway gets opened up, the more it gets reinforced. Make sense? On a neuron level. So again, this is one of the reasons why they will tell people who've had major depressive disorder, stay on your med. And you go, but, but maybe if I come off, I won't have another major depressive episode. You're right, maybe you won't. But the minute that you have another one, it's going to increase the chances of the next one and the next one and the next one. It's better to stay on the med, even if it's a maintenance med. Now, of course, all medications have side effects. Antidepressant medications tend to cause you to gain weight. So if you are someone who's already overweight and that's, you know, sad, that causes depression in you, of course, the last thing you want to do is take an antidepressant medication that causes you to gain more, right? It can cause sexual dysfunction, which can cause relationship problems. So again, medication is not the cure-all, end-all. Talk therapy, way better, but we got to be careful of having the second and the third and the fourth episode. Persistent depressive disorder. Again, this is kind of new to the DSM. That's what your textbook says. Um, essentially, it combines depressive, major depressive disorder with more persistent but milder DSM-4 diagnosis of dysthymia. See, the way that it used to be was dysthymia meant that you have a low mood, but you've never had major depression. Now, we're saying, if you have a low mood, even if you've had a major depressive episode, but this low mood is lasting for two years or more, it's persistent. It's persistent depressive disorder. So it, it opens up the diagnosis to allow you to have a major depressive episode during that two-year period of time. Otherwise, as soon as you have a major depressive episode, we just call you major depression and that's it. So really, it's kind of a new category, but it's a melding. I don't know that it's all that new. I think it's the same thing as dysthymia with just a little bit less rigid criteria. Notice the condition involves nearly continuous state of depressed mood that's lasted for two years without much reprise. So, so again, it doesn't go away very much. New one, another new one to the DSM-5 is disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. It involves that chronic, severe irritability uh, manifested by temper outbursts beginning before the age of 10 years of age, extending to the age of 18. Again, more common in males. And notice it says it's not recommended to give the diagnosis to children under the age of seven. Why? Because they're still learning to control their emotions. 
Do kids under seven throw temper tantrums? Is it normal? Yes, but what about after seven? Not so much. So there is that age cutoff. Notice the outbursts must be persistent at least three times per week or more. And it's gotta be cross-situational. In other words, it can't just be that they throw temper tantrums at school because maybe they have a learning disability and they're acting out because of the learning disability because they can't meet the expectations. This has to happen in multiple settings. It's happening at home. It's happening at school. It's happening at church. It's happening at friends' houses. Multiple settings, at least two. It's created to reduce the diagnosis of bipolar one in children. Because, and it's also under the belief that, again, males tend to show depression with acting out behavior. So I think that's part of it. Notice it's also comorbid with ADHD um, and depression and anxiety in adulthood. So we do tend to see it, you know, progressing from this temper tantrum outburst kind of pattern into more depression and anxiety disorders later on. Not necessarily bipolar, but depression, right? and ADHD. Again, they're not being able to regulate their mood. Maybe it has to do with their impulsivity. Just throwing it out there. The other new kid on the block is this one. Again, I told you it's a little controversial, right? Premenstrual dysphoric disorder became a depressive disorder in the DSM-5. It includes mood liability. In other words, your mood is all over the place. Irritability, depressive symptoms, occurring during most menstrual periods during the preceding year has to be an occurring for at least a year in order to meet the diagnosis. The symptoms, which include at least one physical sign of depression, must be present before menses, improve after menses onset, and become minimal a week after menses. And again, the reason why it's controversial is because, again, I'm not a woman, so I, I, I can't even guess, right? I'm looking around a classroom full of women, right? Can't even guess what you go through. But I would, I would guess, just from dealing with my daughter who's right now going through puberty, that it's gotta suck. Does that make sense? Every month knowing what's coming. And so, you know, it starts, you get those feelings, whatever the cramps might be, all that kind of stuff, those indicators that, yep, next week I'm going to get my, you know, menstrual cycle. That's got to suck. So how much of that is just, excuse my language for saying it this way, normal suckage of life, and how much of it is a mental disorder? Again, if it's causing significant impairment, that seems to be the criteria, you know, the criteria, right? Now, some other depressive disorders, and again, these are all unipolar. Again, they're just headed to the depressive side. No mania. Notice, no mania in any of these yet, right? Substance medication um, induced mood disorder or depressive disorder due to a general medical condition. I remember working with a, a, a inmate at, at work. I believe he had hep. I want to say it was, 
want to say it was hep C, don't quote me on that, but he had interferon treatments and one of the side effects of that, because that's a six month long treatment, this is back in the day, um, is depression symptoms to set in. So again, it's not that they had major depression beforehand, but receiving the medical treatment could have an effect on mood. And so that's where these categories come into play. Got it? What are some causes of depressive disorder? Well, there's some biological causes, some genetics. We do believe that it can run in families. There does seem to be a heredity component. Psychoanalytic theory, of course, Sigmund Freud would say that it's kind of, in some ways, self-loathing. You don't like yourself, right? Um, cognitive, that's that depressive triad I told you about. I suck, the world sucks, my future sucks, according to Beck. Learning, maybe we learn to be helpless. Maybe we learn to be depressed. Learned helplessness is the idea that I learn to give up when I still have much impact I can make. And it was done with Martin Seligman. He did research on dogs. He put them in a pen that had a half wall, right? So they could jump from one side of the pen to the other. He'd provide a mild electrical shock on the bottom of the pen. The dog would jump over the wall, right? Makes sense to escape the, the pain. That's what it would do. What Seligman did was he put a partition up so that the dog was unable to jump over the wall. He would provide a mild electrical shock. You know, so after a bunch of trials, he would then take the partition away, would provide a mild electrical shock, and the dog would not jump. He would just stand there and whimper because it has given up thinking that there's no escape. When there's just a half wall there, it could get out, but it's given up the hope to do so. Make sense? After a period of time, Martin Seligman puts that dog back in that setting, provides a mild electrical shock, the dog will jump over the wall. Even the one that stood and whimpered because learned helplessness tends to be time limited. Same thing happens in human beings. You know, every time you try to pick up your head, you feel like you get it chopped off. Every time you try to pick up your head and climb out of bed, you just seem to get knocked down. Eventually, you just stop climbing. But the human species, just like the animal species, right, has this innate desire to try one more time, <laughs> right? Thank God we do. And we try one more time, and sometimes this allows us to get out. But learned helplessness tends to be temporary. And then some psychosocial causes. Maybe it's society that influences these depressive symptoms that causes us to feel depressed. So again, that's what we see. Notice that for treatment, there's a strong tendency towards spontaneous recovery and reoccurrence in the mood disorders. So yeah, you're suffering for two, three, four weeks, then you seem to come out of it, but then a year later, you're back in depression again. So some of it can seem to go away, but I would say that that going away is only a temporary fix. So the major approach, as I told you, psychopharmacology, SSRIs, electroconvulsive shock therapy, ECT, when it's severe depression. The new kid on the block, transcranial magnetic stimulation. What is that? It's the ability to focus a specific magnetic field to an, a defined area of the brain that disrupts the electrical impulses in that area that seems to maybe show some promise for the treatment of depression. It's less invasive than ECT. It doesn't cause a full seizure. 
It just disrupts the electrical impulses. Yes? Where did they get the idea for that? Because don't they do something similar to that process and use kidney stones? With kidney stones, they use sonogram to kind of break down the kidney stone. So it's, it's much like that. It's much like that. But here it's a magnetic field. I don't know if it's a magnetic field with kidney stones. Or is it sonar? I think it's sound waves to break them down. But it's the same basic idea. Again, focusing them in a specific area to have a specific effect. So it's one of the things that we see. We can use interpersonal therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, behavioral activation. In other words, sometimes people will get in, like my, my example that I gave you earlier, my doom and gloom boy, right? He would say, nobody ever hangs with me. Well, yeah, nobody ever hangs with you because you are depressed. You don't want to do anything. Well, I don't feel like doing anything. Well, why don't you push yourself to go out anyway? Say hi to one new person every day, even if you don't want to. Right? Do behaviors that indicate that you're not as depressed as what you are. Fake it a little bit. And what you find is that, again, if you do that, sometimes your mood will change, right? Like, have you ever been at home and you're like, oh, I don't really feel like doing anything today. Your friend calls you up and says, let's go to the gym. And you go, no, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't really feel like going to the gym. And then you go to the gym, and then at the end of the workout, how do you feel? You feel better, right? Like, oh, you know what? Thanks for getting me to go to the gym. I wouldn't have gone on my own, but I went, and now I feel better. So acting it and then the mood follows. You either influence the mood and the behavior follows, or you influence the behavior and the mood follows. They're connected. Yes? When I was doing research for my research paper for mm -hmm. schizophrenia, a lot of the newer treatments are focused around, like, um, it's PPF, I believe it's called. So it's positive, essentially it's like positive thinking, mm -hmm. but then some of the research studies that they did was fake a smile for a certain amount of time to see if that would make a difference. And it even had like a statistical significance in those people that faked a smile for a certain number of like minutes per day. Right. And I was like, really? A yep. fake smile does but, that much? But think about this, right? If you're depressed and you're down and someone can get you to laugh or just smile a little bit, it changes your mood. In your brain, your brain interprets the facial expression as an emotional feeling. So when you smile, it's tough to act pissed, right? It's tough to act pissed. I used to have one, you know, I used to have a, a, a partner who, um, when I would get upset, they just would crack jokes and try to do whatever just to get me to smile. And it didn't matter how pissed I was, I couldn't stay pissed very long because, again, your body registers that. It registers that behavioral change. So yeah, fake it till you make it, believe it or not, does have an impact in your mood. It's what we see. We can use phototherapy, sleep deprivation. You know, that's one of the things that happens to you. You might go, sleep deprivation. Well, sometimes when people are depressed, they sleep excessively. So I get you to stop sleeping excessively. And then chronotherapy, which has to do with time, right? Now again, medication is the most common approach, right? 
Um, ECT is effective for severe. And then psychotherapy, here's what we know. Psychotherapy, talk therapy is just as effective as medication. Medication is the quick fix. Talk therapy is the long-term help. So those are for unipolar. Now let's talk about the bipolar side, those three disorders, right? So bipolar one is uh, again, uh, distinguished from the other mood disorders because you've had a manic episode at some point in your history. It doesn't have to be all the time, but at least once you've had a manic episode. Notice it says more than nine of 10 have a second manic episode. So 90% of people who have a first manic episode are going to have another one. That's why we call it bipolar. We anticipate it's coming again. Most, 60 to 70% of these individuals will also experience a major depressive episode, thus the term bipolar referring, referring to the two, the two terms. Now you might go, well wait, it's only 60 to 70, what about those other 30%? Well, guess what? They're gonna get depressed at some point. It might not be a full major depressive episode, but it might be a low mood, right? Um, on average, people with bipolar one disorder experience about four reoccurrences in 10 years. So again, it's going to be a pattern that's going to happen recurrently over and over again. That's what we see. And that's on average. So again, you can have more than that. You can have a little less than that. If there are cycles of both mania and major depressive disorder or major depressive episodes, the condition formally turned manic depression, then the condition is described as the most recent episode, hypomanic, manic, or depressed. So again, if you're someone that's cycling, you know, what was the most recent episode? That's the qualifier. So you have bipolar one, most recent episode, manic. We know that you're gonna cycle through hypomania, possibly, definitely through major depression coming up. Or bipolar one, most recent episode, depression. What do we anticipate will probably be the next one? Probably a mania. Maybe not, but, but probably. And notice it says, we can also put this qualifier on here with rapid cycling meaning that it's happening more than four times in 10 years. You're rapidly cycling and it's extremes. So that's different than cyclothymic disorder. Cyclothymic disorder is extremes, but it's not, it's just a little extreme mood, a little ex depressed mood back and forth. We're talking extreme li you know, uh, liability of mood from one extreme to another. So notice it says rapid cycling um, means that you've had at least four mood episodes within the past year. So instead of four episodes in 10 years, four episodes in one year, rapid cycling. Additional moods may be experienced concurrently with the manic episode as well. So again, you might have mixed features. So for the two weeks or one week that you're manic, you've shown some depression in there too. So you have mixed features, not just full-blown mania. Again, other things have been in there. In these cases, mood shifts might be rapid between mania and depressed states. Um, 
and each sometimes lasting only a few hours. Something like incredibly rapid <laughs> cycling, but we don't call it incredibly rapid cycling. We just say with mixed features because in any given day, you've been both depressed and manic. So what about bipolar two? Well, remember in contrast to bipolar one, bipolar two involves or does not involve a manic episode. With bipolar two, you've had hypomania, mania light, but you haven't had full-blown mania. The minute you have full-blown mania, it's bipolar one, it always will be. If you've had less than that, then we call it bipolar two. So the person has experienced less severe hypomanic episodes interspersed with major depressive episodes. And notice it says the major depressive episode is necessary for a bipolar two. Now in bipolar one, they don't say that. Like, could you have a manic episode and then come down and seem to have another manic episode and then come down and seem to have a, yeah, you could in bipolar one because you've had full-blown mania, but our anticipation is it's just a matter of time before you're gonna head the other direction. Just a matter of time. Here, you have to have been depressed. And now you're hypomanic. So again, it's necessary. And notice it says more impairment than bipolar one due to more frequent depression. We tend to see a lot more depression in bipolar two. Cyclothymic disorder, cycling mood. That's a way to remember this term, right? does not involve either mania or hypomania or major depressive disorders or episodes. What it involves is a low level of mood and then a higher level of mood. It's again, cycling mood. It's not as an extreme. It doesn't meet those extremes that these other diagnoses do, right? So hypomania symptoms that never fully meet the criteria for hypomanic that alternate with depressive symptoms which never fully meet the criteria for depression. So these mood swings last for at least two years. They cause significant distress or dysfunction for the person. Notice what it says, between 15 to 50% will eventually develop a bipolar one or bipolar two disorder. So, it has that potential to turn into something more. Some of the other bipolar disorders are substance and medication induced bipolar and related disorder, bipolar and related disorder due to another medical condition or other specified bipolar or related disorders. Things like um, conditions where hypomanic episodes are brief in duration, um, that do not occur with major depressive disorders or, or depressive episodes or cyclothymia that does not persist for the full two years, maybe only makes it a year and a half, so it doesn't quite meet the full criteria. And so we have this kind of default category for it to fall into. Make sense? Questions? All right, so what are some possible causes for bipolar? Well, we know genetics. In fact, it's proposed that chromosomes 4, 12, 18, 21, and the X chromosome actually may be tied to bipolar conditions. We know that HPA 
and increased cortisol also seems to be related to, again, um, genetics and the cause of bipolar disorder. We know stress, being in a high or low income countries, being in those extremes again, from one extreme to another, even neurochemistry. So there's some belief that maybe bipolar is related to norepinephrine. Like maybe depression is related to serotonin, but norepinephrine, maybe that's more related to bipolar. It's one of the things that we can kind of take a look at. The pharmacological treatment, how do we treat bipolar? Well, lithium carbonate has long been shown to be more effective than placebo in treating manic phase of bipolar one. So lithium um, is a medication, it's a naturally occurring salt. Um, we put it in the body. The problem with lithium is lithium's therapeutic level, the level at which you have to have it in your system in order to have an effective outcome is very close to its toxic level in the human being. So you have to crank it just high enough to be therapeutic, but not so high as to be toxic. So if you're on lithium, you need to have regular monthly blood checks of the lithium levels to make sure it doesn't become toxic. So many people don't want to go for monthly blood checks. They just don't want you know, blood being drawn like that. Notice it says too, while lithium may have always been a long-term and effective treatment, what we know is there's a significant percentage of patients who do not respond well to maintenance therapy. The toxicity can be a problem, and many bipolar patients find the manic state to be enjoyable. They like mania. I start a thousand things, I'm full of energy. In fact, I don't tend to go to the hospital when I'm under a manic state. It's when I'm under the depressed state that I go to the hospital. Now, my family might send me during a manic state, but I don't think there's anything wrong with me. So, and, and again, here's one of the things that we have to pay attention to. By the way, this is true of aspirin too. You know we don't know why aspirin works. We have no idea why it works. But we use it, just saying. Well, lithium's mode of action, we still don't understand either. But it works. So sounds good. We'll use that, right? Um, notice that no psychotherapies alone, you know, are, are effective. So you go, well, talk therapy. Talk therapy seems to work with the depressive side, not with the mania. So we do need some kind of pharmacological kind of improvement. Psychoeducation can improve medication compliance. Cognitive behavioral therapy can address problem solving, stress management, communication skills, even relapse prevention. But medication is important to keep your mood regulated. So notice it's cognitive therapy plus medication that seems to reduce relapse rates. So just letting you know, it seems to be better than just, again, you know, talk therapy alone. Suicide. So we have about a few slides left. Do you guys mind if we run a little bit over because we're recording this? I'm not sure. So far, we still have a red light. Well, battery's about half. So I'd like to try to get this in if I can. Does that sound good? All right. So suicide. 
Remember I told you at the beginning of class, suicide is not a mental disorder, but it is tied to mental disorders. And there is a high correlation between depressive symptoms and suicide. That's why it's in this chapter, because it's related to mood. So suicide is by no means always associated with severe depression, but a much higher proportion of individuals diagnosed with depression commit suicide than in the general population. Like some people will commit suicide for other means. To prove a point, think about the monks that have protested like unfair treatment, set themselves on fire. Well, that's suicide. It's in the intentional taking of one's life, but they're doing it for a purpose. Does that make sense? A kamikaze pilot who sacrifices themselves by flying their plane into the deck of a ship, you know, is not necessarily depressed. They're doing it for the greater good of the country they're supporting. Does it make sense? Suicide bomber, whatever you want to say. So that's what they believe in their head. Suicide has become a serious problem for the military who had more suicides than combat deaths in Afghanistan in 2012. So again, the stress, the pressure, all of that. PTSD, if you want to even think about that. Bipolar disorder is associated with the highest risk for males become manic and then fall apart and then become depressed, it seems to be. Substance use disorder was associated with the highest risk in females. So getting addicted seems to be, again, a higher risk for females. Not everyone is at equal risk. That's what we know. There are strong ethnic and gender differences. Males tend to succeed at suicide four times the rate of females but it's because males choose more lethal means. Most common male choice, handguns, hanging. Those are big, right? Um, that's part of the reason. Notice that 80% of suicide deaths are males because of their more lethal means. So while males are more successful at suicide, women attempt more frequently. Now you would argue, you know, you might say, well, women attempt more frequently because they're, they're not as successful. So they're going to attempt again because they didn't, weren't successful the first time. Well, maybe so. You know, maybe if males weren't as successful, they would, you know, have the same patterns. We don't know, but they tend to be more successful. Again, it says, although males complete suicide more often, females make nearly three times as many suicide attempts. So there are three times the suicide attempts of males. Suicide rates are much higher in white and Native Americans uh, and Native Alaskan males than other groups. And we know that age is more a significant factor in the likelihood of male suicide than female suicide. It means that as males get older, they tend to lose. Here's just some, you know, kind of, if you want to talk about some psychosocial effects. As males get older, males tend to hold the power in general, right? They tend to hold powerful positions. They tend to be more the dominant ones in relationships. As they get older, they tend to lose power. They tend to lose control. They lose their position. So as they get older, that tends to impact, again, suicide risk. One of the things to think about. We know that stressful life events 
also are associated with suicide attempts. In fact, in one study, those who had attempted suicide reported four times as many stressful life events as people in the general population. So stress. Notice it says one and a half times as many for the depressed sample. So even when you compare them to depressed samples, they're still more often they have a more stressful life than even depressed samples. There are two general types of events that present um, often in the lives of people who are, attempt suicide. One is interpersonal conflicts. So again, relationship problems, problems with others. And the second one is a serious illness of a close family member or themselves. And here's the other aspect. Men tend to confide less frequently in others than women. Women tend to have a large circle of close friends that they will self-disclose with. Men don't tend to do that. They tend to do that with their partners and not very many other people. So when they lose their partner or their partner becomes ill, that is the loss of their support system. With women, they don't have the same impact. Does that make sense? Because they always have somebody else to fall back on. Men, not so much. I'm just sharing that. All right. So that's some of the stuff that we see. Um, just here's some charts on suicide. Um, this is deaths per 100,000 in different groups. So again, and this is deaths per 100,000, uh, uh, you know, in specific groups. So here's our chart. I'm not sure why I have it on there twice. Uh, I guess I have no idea why I have it up there twice. I think that's labeled wrong. I think one has to be attempts and the other one is successful deaths, right? So again, you can see white non-Hispanic tends to be, even on all these charts, tends to be higher, right? And also American Indian and Na Alaskan Native tends to be higher. Notice if we take a look at Asian Pacific Islander tends to be lower, Hispanic tends to be lower, non-Hispanic uh, black tends to be lower. So again, it's just, that's kind of some of the stuff to take a look at when you look at these charts. So you go, wait, who's at most risk? Well, here it is, you know? And again, we can come up with a lot of correlations as to why that is, it's difficult to determine. So let's group some suicide acts, right? So um, uh, I guess that's uh, Belcher in uh, 1979 studied 127 cases of suicide and proposed that suicidal acts could be grouped into four different categories. One, suicide represents an escape from an intolerable situation. So I feel overwhelmed, there's no escape, suicide is the answer. Two, suicide is an act of aggression. You're pissed at someone, you take it out on them and yourself. Maybe even pissed at yourself for what you did or didn't do. Number three, suicide can be an act of sacrifice or in relation to some higher values. Again, you're, you're suicide, but it's an attempt to, to do something, to represent some higher ideology. The suicide bomber, as an example. The monk, again, uh, that I shared already, who sets himself on fire to protest, you know, the inhumanity of the world. And then the fourth one is suicide performed in the context of games or undergoing an ordeal in order to prove oneself. And so, again, this is maybe you might call accidental suicide, you know, Russian roulette. 
this idea of you take a pistol, you put one bullet in, you spin the chamber, you point it up to your head, are you man enough to pull the trigger? The only problem is, if you tend to have the bad luck of having the one chamber that's loaded, you're not gonna serve, but you're trying to prove yourself how tough you are, and then in the process you end up dying. Does that kind of make sense? And, and there's many examples. I'm trying to prove that I'm the best driver. I drive excessively on the back road, you know, just trying to play a game, and then I lose control and the car goes off. Is that suicide? Well, in some ways, yeah, because you, you did risky behavior that led to your eventual death. Does that make sense? Didn't seem to care about the consequences. So, um, What are some risk factors for suicide? Two slides left. One, a previous suicide attempt. So if you've attempted in the past, there's a higher likelihood that you might attempt again. In fact, that's the strongest single predictor of suicidal activity that you've attempted in the past. Number two, you've contemplated a method at hand. The more contemplated, the more realistic, then the more severe. I worked with a, a, a client once who was recovering from drug and alcohol uh, problem. They uh, lived by themselves. Their uh, spouse had left them. They were you know, going through a divorce. They were in trouble at work. They were about ready to lose their job. They came into work and they were saying, you know, I just don't feel like I can go on anymore. And I said, oh, what would you do? He goes, well, I just wouldn't be here. I said, well, do you have a plan? And this is what he said. He said, I live by myself in a house. I've got a deck and I've got a patio underneath it. And if I was going to commit suicide, I would tie a rope around the floorboards of the deck above. I would stand on a stool. I would get drunk. I'd put a noose around my neck and I'd wait to fall off the stool. And I would do it on a Friday because no one would find me until Monday. That's a pretty elaborate plan. Somebody really took some thought. That is a pretty fatal outcome. Does that make sense? So then my next question was, do you have a rope? No, I haven't bought a rope. And I haven't bought vodka because I'd need to drink a bottle of vodka in order, to, in order to pull it off and I really don't want to relapse. And I know that's what isn't what I really want to do, but I just feel hopeless. So we had a long talk about it. We made a contract, we agreed that instead of, this was actually a Friday morning, right? Instead of, we, we agreed that, you know, if this is something you truly feel like you're, you're, you're going to do, you can do that anytime. I mean, I can have you, you know, put away for the weekend, but that's really not going to stop you if next weekend you want to do it, and I can't put you away every Friday. So, can we at least agree that we will meet on Monday? That you will be here? And it's the least that you can do is, you know, be here with me you know, think about, it. let's talk. So after talking with him for an excessive period of time, right, I felt comfortable that he was going to follow through with that. That he wasn't going to leave my office and go to the liquor store. And he did show up Monday. And Monday he felt better. Like he, it wasn't, he, it wasn't as bad. With time, it had kind of let itself go. Does that kind of make sense? But he had contemplated a pretty serious method. I worked with, <laughs> in the prison, and I talked to one inmate once, and I said, you know, are, do you feel like committing suicide? Yeah, if I had a gun right now, I'd shoot myself. But he's in prison. He doesn't have a gun. It's much different than if the inmate says, I'm going to take this sheet, and as soon as you walk away, I'm going to tie it around these bars, and I'm going to sit down. That's much different. He has a sheet. Does that make sense? So you look for those. 
Um, male gender, that's a risk factor. Hopelessness, a risk factor. A diagnosis of mood disorder or schizophrenia, risk factors. Previous or psychiatric admissions, presence of drugs or alcohol because it lessens inhibitions. Functional, physical, or psychological limitations. Again, maybe they've got some kind of disability and they just can't cope with it anymore and they don't feel like they can go on. Chronic health problems, sleep problems where they're not sleeping right because again, something's you know, weighing down heavy on their mind. And what about prevention? So here's all the risk factors. What about prevention? Well, here's what we know. Usually, this is our general assumption, is that a person is intensely suicidal only for a short period of time. That the support of others can gap that time period and get them through the period. So if I can just get them through the period, that with time that, that thought will disappear. That it's a limited time, time limited thought. Does that make sense? Like with my guy, the example I gave you, I figured if I can get him through the weekend and I can get him through the week and I can get some days behind him and have him start to feel good about himself again, that it'll shift, that it'll lift. It's just he was feeling overwhelmed by the end of the week, right? The aim of suicide prevention, and our also belief is that people don't really wanna die, they just don't wanna live. They wanna get off the roller coaster for a while. They just want a break. And of course, life doesn't give you a break. The aim of suicide prevention is to assist a person to consider other alternatives and to direct the person to resources for psychotherapeutic help. Some protective factors, some things that benefit the person, family support, significant relationships. If they have my guy who his wife was leaving him, right? Because he was getting divorced because of his substance abuse. If he had a support system, then he's less likely to act on that. But he was feeling really alone, right? Plans for the future. The more you plan for the future, we made agreements. We're going to meet on Monday. You're not gonna let me down. We make plans. The more plans for the future, they're like, well, I don't know. I can't really plan that far ahead. Mm -mm -mm, no, no, we're going to plan that far ahead, right? Employment. If a person's employed, remember his employment was on the rocks. Being in treatment, because again, you have some therapeutic help or support system. And then prevention, we can also talk about community mental health services. So again, hotlines, you know, resources that are available within the community to help people feel that they're not as helpless and not as alone. So that's mood disorders and suicide. Any questions about that? I thank you for listening and I appreciate it. And hopefully this recording turned out pretty well.